0: Welcome to Herd at Heritage. Herd at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Welcome to the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. The PowerCast is a new biweekly audio program for those interested in the top conservative insight and analysis of energy, climate, and environmental issues. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. I want to thank you for listening as we discuss the Senate's so-called Inflation Reduction Act with a focus on the energy and climate-related provisions of the bill. In addition, though, we'll discuss broader aspects of the bill, in large part to provide necessary context. I'm joined by two leading heritage experts. David Ditch is a policy analyst focusing on federal spending and fiscal policy in Heritage's Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. And Katie Tubb is Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. So let's get right to it. First, David and Katie, thank you for being here.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, glad to be here.
1: To start off, it's, I think, important to lay out some broader, big-picture points regarding the proposed legislation. So, Dave, I'm going to start with you to kind of lay out this bigger picture. First, the the Senate bill is a reconciliation bill. What does that even mean?
0: So reconciliation flows from a budget resolution. In theory, it's a way to make it easier to pass legislation that fits the parameters that are established in a budget resolution. So, for example – Two pieces of legislation that were passed in this manner were last year's $1.9 trillion uh, subsidy package, which, by the way, helped to jumpstart the inflation we're suffering, and also the 2017 tax cut bill. Uh, Procedurally, what what reconciliation does is it allows legislation to pass through the Senate with only 50 votes rather than going through various procedural hurdles that require 60 votes. And – As a result, um, the Democrats put together some what are called reconciliation instructions for the current fiscal year, which is ending in September, which would enable them to pass another big tax and spend bill, and that's what we have before us.
1: So how did this bill kind of pass? It just seemed to come out of nowhere.
0: It's been very much of a start and stop operation, and – for a while, a lot of people declared uh, this to be a, a moot issue because uh, Senators Manchin and Sinema had both balked at various versions of this bill. Um, you know, Most of the last year, it's been named Build Back Better and that name is now gone by the wayside. Now it's the quote-unquote Inflation Reduction Act and – There were some negotiations behind closed doors between Majority Leader Schumer and Senator Manchin and Manchin, who had wanted the bill to be less insanely tax and spend than what was originally proposed, ultimately got what he wanted, which is a slightly less insane tax and spend package.
2: He also got a very nice uh, natural gas pipeline coming out of his state. So you could call this the most expensive natural gas pipeline in United States history.
1: (laughs) That's a great point, Katie. And speaking about the uh, price tag, the climate and clean energy provisions of the bill, David, are $369 billion. What's the total price tag
0: on the bill? The total price tag is in the neighborhood of $500 billion. Normally, a $500 billion piece of legislation is a really big deal. It would be seen as a major accomplishment for any given session of Congress. Unfortunately, the left has moved things so far beyond the the scope of what's reasonable – that $500 billion is considered a, a modest compromise. It's only modest in relation to the kind of spending that they wanted last year, which was about 10 times as much. However, even that number, that $500 billion amount is gimmicked because one of the major spending provisions is Obamacare health insurance subsidies, and they only extend that for three years. If you extended it for 10 years, that would add over $100 billion to the cost of the package or in the neighborhood of $600 billion.
1: So, David, the legislation is called the Inflation Reduction Act. What are your thoughts about that title?
0: I think this is pure Aurelian nonsense. What the proponents say is that because on paper it reduces the deficit, that means that it would be good for inflation. Typically, when you reduce deficit spending, that would reduce inflationary pressures. However, the majority of the on-paper deficit reduction from this legislation takes place in the out years rather than right now, which is when we need it the most. Um, And I'll get into a little bit later about um, some other provisions that I think would really – eliminate any potential this bill would have to reduce inflation.
1: Great. So, Katie, let, let's look at the energy and climate aspects of the bill. So, actually, let me ask you, from kind of energy, climate, and environment perspective, what's your take on the name of the Inflation Reduction Act?
2: Mm, well, this uh, does pretty much nothing to address the root policy problems that are exacerbating energy prices. Energy prices, you know, are being a major contributor to the higher prices Americans are paying, whether you're talking about utility bills, uh, the gas tank, or uh, throughout the economy, food prices. Uh, pretty much any good and service we engage in uses energy. And so there are policy choices that we can make to help re- relieve some of those pressures. And I think this bill does not take any of that seriously unless you consider uh, more money for energy um, hiring a few more people at Department of Interior, Department of Energy, uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to process permits. I don't know that uh, spending a couple hundred million dollars more to uh, pay for more federal employees counts as getting at some of those root problems. So, A, you know, in that sense, we're not talking about actually fixing anything here. And then, B, we're just shifting costs to taxpayers. So, uh <laughs> It's just moving the chairs around.
1: So, Katie, I'd like to read two quotes and get your take. So President Biden stated, and just reading what he said, when it comes to the gas prices, we're going through an incredible transition that is taking place that, God willing, when it's over, we'll be stronger, and the world will be stronger and less reliant on fossil fuels when this is over. And I think another quote that's well known by now is former President Barack Obama said, under my plan, electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket. So Katie, do you think it's fair to say that higher energy prices are not an unintended consequence of certain policy choices, but the expected outcome?
2: Uh, Very much so. You know, it's it's nice when politicians are honest. (laughs) And I think in these two cases, uh, Presidents Obama and Biden have been very honest about what their policies are intended to do, which is uh, to push conventional energy out of the reach of Americans, uh, families, businesses, the economy. Um, Certainly, President Biden has tried to persuade the American people otherwise by pointing blame elsewhere. But I think actions speak just as loud as words, if not louder. And certainly, this administration and their actions have shown a uh, persistent, consistent commitment to keep uh, conventional energy on the downward trend uh from their perspective preferably as fast as possible um so yeah i would say president uh, biden is just picking up where president obama left off
1: so let's briefly get to some specifics and what what are katie what are some of the highlights or what i call the low lights of what's in the energy and climate related parts of the bill
2: well, I'll, I'll start with one positive, that this bill isn't quite as bad as it was last year. You know, David mentioned there have been several iterations of this bill. Uh, it is less penalizing of oil and gas than previous versions. So that's about as positive as I can be. Um, that said, it pushes energy policy through the tax code and to a, uh, an expanding level. Uh, to me, that is very bad tax policy. It's also very bad energy policy. Uh, It increases fees uh, and costs on energy production on federal lands, federal waters, and incidentally uh, through the private sector as well. Um, Another just really bad big number is a $250 billion loan guarantee program uh, out of the Department of Energy. So you think of Cylindra's, Um, that has to be spent or used between now and 2026. So we're talking about a lot of money and a very short amount of time. That's a recipe for uh, waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, But I think the big picture here that is uh, disappointing is that it's buying into this idea that the only way to get uh, lower prices, more energy, inspire innovation, is if the government taxes Americans and then pays other Americans to do it. And to me, that's such a uh, lack of confidence in the American people to solve problems if given the freedom to do so. And I think that's what this bill doesn't affirm and instead buys into the idea that the way to solve problems is for the federal government, federal bureaucrats, to fix them for the American people.
1: So, Katie, I want to talk about subsidies for electric vehicles. And first of all, who benefits from subsidies for electric vehicles?
2: Well, uh, if you look at who buys electric vehicles, it tends to be, um, the wealthy. So you look at, we, we currently have an electric vehicle tax credit, $7,500 for new vehicles. Uh, if you look at that past experience, about half of the credit goes to corporations buying EV fleets, and the other half, uh, roughly, goes to Americans making over $100,000 a year. So this is the lifestyle choice of wealthy Americans, Um Just one other way to narrow that down, if you also look at where EVs are registered, about 40% are in the state of California. So you could kind of narrow this down to wealthy Californians benefit from EV tax credits. Um, Certainly there's been some adjustments being proposed with this new bill uh, that will probably change the dynamics there. But if you look at the cost of EVs right now, they're not in reach of, I would say, the average American, um, either for the, the term of the cost or in terms of the trade-offs that are involved. Uh, and there's a variety of trade-offs when it comes to EVs.
1: So, Katie, how would you respond to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg? Reportedly, he, about a year ago, he argued this, that more Americans should purchase electric vehicles so that they never have to worry about gas prices again. I mean, how will you respond to that kind of mindset? Uh,
2: We've heard that kind of uh, posture from a politician uh, hundreds of years ago in the form of Marie Antoinette. Uh, That is a politician saying, I know best how to make decisions for you and your family, for your business. Um, And I think what uh, the the secretary is uh, doing there is – steamrolling over the variety of reasons why someone would not choose an EV. I think, you know, from my perspective, it would have been much better to say, look, EVs have something interesting to offer. They're not the right thing for everybody. That's up to you to figure out to weigh the pros and cons. I think that's what's made America a great country to uh, innovate, to grow business, uh, to be a consumer. It's that the Person in the driver's seat when it comes to making decisions is the consumer. And if you think about the American consumer, there is quite a diversity of needs, preferences, priorities. And that's what um, the secretary is ignoring and saying, no, I know best. And therefore, this is the way we should go. And I'm willing to push policies to force Americans to uh, choose that or not have the option to choose something different. Instead, I think EVs should be able to compete right alongside uh, the internal combustion engine and whatever we come up with next.
1: And, and it kind of plays into the idea that the policies that that they're pushing or the driving up prices, that's actually by design, not an unintended consequence. And the worse is that there doesn't seem to be particularly care about that. It's just basically saying, deal with it, I think, at least from that quote to me, is Deal with it. This is an incentive, therefore, to buy electric vehicles. So in a sense, their policies are trying to, as you said, dictate kind of how Americans, what kind of cars they drive and really how they live. Um, David, I want to take a quick detour away from kind of the specifics as relates to energy and climate and the subsidies and, and, and talk about taxes real quick in this bill. Can you tell us about the tax increases in the legislation and what the Joint Committee on Taxation said about the bill?
0: This would be the the biggest uh, tax hike I believe we've seen since the the passage of Obamacare. Um, There is a de facto tax hike in that they want to hire an army of new agents for the IRS to shake Americans down, and while the left likes to talk a big game about how they're going to go after all the billionaires. The reality is the easier targets are small businesses and middle-class families in terms of raising new revenue. um, The net result of that is going to be, they think, a windfall. Uh, It remains to be seen how much these IRS agents would actually bring in in revenue, but we know for sure that they're going to be issuing lots and lots of audits at a minimum. Uh, The Bigger tax in terms of the dollar amount is a new corporate minimum tax and this is a tax that is a way of saying in, – in theory, there are lots of uh, ways in which businesses can do certain things that the government gives them credit for and now the democrats are saying, well, we know we told you to do X, Y and Z but if you do X, Y and Z and that lowers your um, – your taxable income too much, we're going to hammer you with this new minimum tax. And what the Joint Committee on Taxation has revealed is that this new minimum tax would absolutely devastate the manufacturing sector, which is mind-boggling because the Trump administration and Biden administration didn't seem to agree on a lot, but one thing they really both seemed to agree on is the importance of domestic manufacturing, the importance of U.S. competitiveness Where the Trump administration went for tax reform, went for regulatory reform, the Biden administration wants to subsidize with one hand and tax with the other hand. Uh, The perfect illustration of this is that Congress is in the process of passing a massive amount of corporate welfare dedicated to semiconductor manufacturing, and the semiconductor manufacturers are going to be one of the hardest hit. By this new corporate minimum tax, it's mind-boggling. And also, it dramatically undercuts the inflation reduction potential of this legislation. One of the things we need most right now is more goods because there's so much money sloshing around the economy. More money chasing fewer goods is a driver of inflation. If we go after manufacturing with this new minimum tax, they're going to produce less, and it's going to mean fewer goods, which is going to maintain that inflation for longer than it should be going on.
1: Well, that was um, yeah, <laughs> depressing and uh, no great points, David. And we see that all the time, right, where the government adopts policies that are working across purposes and and sometimes joint purposes just to mess things up, actually. And, and nothing aspires more than having kind of a new army of people at the IRS to go after people to collect the taxes and that's what this bill actually has a significant focus on that as you mentioned.
0: Yes. And again they they're relying on that potential new revenue from the new from all the extra IRS agents to pay for all this new spending. But again, it's not they can't count their chickens before they, they hatch. There's no way of knowing exactly how much money this would bring in. The one certainty is that those IRS agents are going to be drawing a salary, are going to be getting those cushy federal government benefits.
1: So, so Katie, one key aspect of this legislation or tax credits to promote energy-efficient appliances, let me ask, why shouldn't the government promote energy-efficient appliances?
2: Well, it's not that uh, energy efficiency is a bad thing. Uh, Americans make efficient decisions all of the time when they think it is in their uh, benefit to do so. But I think when you start uh, using the tax code to push policy, you run into problems. Uh, you run into some of the incoherence David was just talking about. And it's not just energy efficiency. It's wind, solar, um, electric vehicles like we just mentioned. And just to give you an example of what this inconsistency can look like with energy efficiency – uh, the Mackinac Center uh, had a, an interesting report a couple of years ago looking at energy efficiency, heat pumps. What would be the implications of subsidizing uh, homes in the Upper Peninsula? So a very small segment of the state of Michigan. What would be the implications of subsidizing? And basically what they come up with is if you if you want to do this, it's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to purchase heat pumps, to uh, insulate these homes, and by the way, the state allotment for federal weatherization is $17 million. So, you know, even if you believe in these programs, the question then becomes, okay, what are we actually accomplishing here? Um, you know, we're we're talking about, A, the federal government deciding that something like heat pumps make sense for every American in the United States, which they don't. You know, they, they become... Less efficient once you get to 30 degrees Fahrenheit, and there's a lot of the country that lives in much colder regions. B, uh, you're spending a lot of money to accomplish what? Uh, And at the end of the day, Americans make these decisions when they make sense anyway. So you're you're feeding into, I think, a DC-centric mindset and cronyism because there is one entity that benefits from these, and it's the energy efficiency industry.
1: Okay, I'd like to follow up. There, there's an underlying assumption that – I mean there's genuinely a kind of a, an argument that they – the D.C. folks and others will make um, that the consumers simply just don't know what to do. they they're, They don't have the necessary information or they make the wrong choices. And the idea is that in order to kind of nudge people in the right direction or to get them to make the right choices is to push the tax credits. I just wanted to bring up that point because I I find it to be extremely arrogant.
2: Well, and I think that's, you know, maybe there is an education problem, but that's an education problem. That is not a spend money problem. That is a helping Americans understand what their choices are. That involves a very different set of solutions.
1: And the private businesses, it's called advertising, and that would be the kind of a good way of like maybe having people buy their product. Exactly. Um, Let's talk about electricity production, Katie. The Inflation Reduction Act promotes clean, quote, clean electricity. Can you explain this a little bit more and why this is good or bad?
2: Well, again, just like energy efficiency, everybody wants clean energy. You know, clean electricity. You know, that's there's nothing wrong about that. What this uh, bill puts forward, though, is an extension, an expansion of uh, tax credits, both for production and investment of wind, solar, um, nuclear. Ironically, uh, the infrastructure bill last year also subsidizes nuclear. So I think we're double subsidizing nuclear at this point. And there are common themes here. (laughs) There are problems created when you subsidize specific energy technologies one of them, I think, being what we're dealing with now is reliability issues. You've, you've messed with the economics of the system, both at a federal and a state level, uh, in a way that doesn't take into consideration things like, uh, does this make sense for the consumer, both on the affordability side and on the reliability side? And when you start messing with price point, uh, you're subjecting or uh, moving down these very critical considerations when it comes to the electric grid and prioritizing this subsidy um, leverage point for which there will be consequences. And I think we're seeing that particularly in the states of California and Texas right now where um, certain energy technologies have been subsidized and there have been reliability consequences to that end.
1: Real, Real quickly, Katie, are there any penalties on commercial sources of energy in this bill that we should pay attention to?
2: Yeah, so on federal lands and waters, uh, this bill does increase uh, minimum bids, rental rates, new, adds new fees to nominating parcels, uh, increases bonding rates. So there, it, it basically increases the cost of engaging uh, on federal lands and waters when it comes to oil and gas production. Uh, but it also hits at uh, energy production on state and private lands through a methane fee, uh, which would be levied at uh, production, transmission, storage, export, when methane is uh, emitted, escapes, for whatever reason, um, that will be taxed, and the the, the tax increases and is adjusted um, depending on EPA regulation and time schedule. So you know over the next decade or so. You know, Darren, we've talked a lot about energy, but I think there's a lot of uh, more environmental climate-type issues that we should be talking about as well. And there's particularly some that I think you would have some thoughts on. There's this weird provision for climate-smart agriculture practices. Could you you spell out some of that?
1: I'll try to. Um, So there's $20 billion in the bill to support so-called climate-smart agricultural practices. And this issue kind of bothers me Um, because, I, first of all, I think there is a a general – there's a disdain, especially on the left, for American agricultural practices and – which they view as causing all kinds of damages uh, to this country, environmental and otherwise. And you know, a couple of years ago, right from the outset, there was this kind of push to transform the U.S. food system. This is all part of that. Now, even for those who – don't have that overt disdain, but they, you know, want to push these policies. The the reality is that this bill is enabling the federal government to dictate agricultural practices. And look, we've got a bill here called the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, you would think that you wouldn't try to push practices that, I'll tell you one thing, they're they're not focused on assuring efficient, low-cost food, or making sure, or like really focus on productivity. You think that those are the types of things that would be front and center when you're actually trying to drive down prices. And I don't wanna get into too much detail on this particular issue, but the Biden administration, the the USDA has already been using a funding mechanism known as the Commodity Credit Corporation as a climate change slush fund. So they've been spending already a lot of money to push uh, these alleged climate smart agricultural practices and, the, and basically what it is is it's an end run around Congress. And now for this bill, what Congress is doing if they pass this bill would be blessing, in my opinion, this abuse that has already been kind of pushed by the Biden administration. And I was just looking at the, the bill this morning, and, and the, the language of the bill basically leaves it up to the, the USDA secretary with very little specifics as to what agricultural practices address greenhouse gas emissions, from agriculture practices. So, ironically, the, yeah, this climate, the commodity credit corporation being used as climate change slash fund, giving all kinds of discretion for the secretary, which I would actually argue was not authorized. and, And basically this bill blesses it and then winds up giving the secretary all kinds of discretion as relates to what are climate smart ag practices.
2: Darren, you know You looked at the bill also when it first came out, and you wrote a a good piece, I think, helping break down some of the costs for people to understand what in the world is in this huge package. And you, you said that Americans can expect to get the worst of both worlds. And I thought that was an interesting statement. What did you mean by that?
1: There's already, Katie, a massive regulatory avalanche from the Biden administration that's seeking to push its Green New Deal agenda. And now we're getting this massive spending To go with it, not that we didn't have massive spending already kind of complimenting it anyway, but now it's going to be even worse. You know, some have claimed – I've kind of been reading that people are talking about how this bill provides a lot of carrots to address this agenda, and there's not that many sticks in the bill, and we've already pointed out that there are some sticks. But but the thing is that 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 argument fails to recognize that the sticks already exist. That's what we call regulation, and instead of removing regulation – in light of all the spending. So, you know, okay, we're going to, have to spend, so maybe this is an opportunity to kind of remove some of these regulatory obstacles. No, what's going to happen is the regulations will still exist, and they're going to be greatly expanded, as we know. Nothing's changing in that in that space. And now the spending is going to go tremendously. So that's kind of what I meant by you genuinely. You, you know, you're going to have the worst of both worlds, the regulatory side and the spending side.
2: Well, and somebody has to pay for the carrots, and it's the taxpayer.
1: That's right. So, So, David, let's look at some of the bigger picture issues again. And actually, you'd address this issue a little bit. Um, The Inflation Reduction Act allegedly reduces the federal deficit. And I just wanted to – isn't this a good thing? And also, if you could just provide some context
0: on that. Sure. Uh, The Biden administration's record on deficits is riddled with dishonesty and gimmicks. Uh, The president repeatedly has taken credit for – The on-paper reduction in the deficit for this year compared to the year before, the thing is the deficit was already scheduled to go down if nothing happened and in fact the deficit went down by a smaller amount because of all the extra deficit spending that the administration embarked on and rather than recognizing that the government has been spending too much and needs to rein that in, we need to put Uncle Sam on the diet – This bill doubles down on viewing government spending as a solution to all of our problems. Deficits are inflationary. They are also bad for the nation's long-term health. You said that right now we have a national debt that amounts to about $225,000 for every household in the country, and it's only going to get worse moving forward. But not all deficit reduction is created equal there 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 are a wealth of studies and there's more every year taking a look at what happens when countries reduce deficits by focusing on taxes or by focusing on on spending time and again spending reduction is a much better way to maintain and enhance economic growth compared to tax increases that typically Reduce economic growth. They reduce vitality. Let's even move beyond that. Even if we uh, say, "Okay, it's reducing deficits. Yeah, they're doing it with taxes. But a lot of the deficit reduction is a mirage. Again, as I mentioned earlier, they want to make these Obamacare subsidies permanent, but they only include three years of it in this bill – If you extend those three years out to 10 years, that adds over $100 billion in new spending. Additionally, they're they're claiming $120 billion in savings by postponing this arcane drug rebate rule, which is a a pure gimmick. Congress has repeatedly delayed this thing. They have no intention of allowing it to happen, but rather than just saying we're going to kill this thing dead – they they keep postponing it so that they can come back again in legislation like this and try to say that, oh, we're saving money this way. It's absolutely wrong. And another way that they say they're going to reduce the deficit is by going after prescription drug manufacturing. I will admit that prescription drugs are not my core area of expertise. However, the people who are experts in prescription drugs will say that – again, repeatedly said that this is going to dramatically undercut research and development and drug production in the US and that is going to lead to many fewer blockbuster medications over the next few years and that is going to lead to – I, can, I just saw this analysis yesterday. Someone estimating that the reduction in lives saved from all these new drugs that are never going to come to be would have a would be a bigger hit to Americans' health than even the COVID pandemic was.
1: So I want to stay on the big picture, but I want to turn to you, Katie, on this. And to me, and I just want to get your take on this. This. Bill, I think it's pretty clear, is an attempt to try and reshape energy production in this, in this country. I just want to get your take on not only that observation, but what the implications are of that.
2: Uh, well, I think you're right. Uh, you talked about the carrots and sticks earlier. And in some sense, we've got the the stick, which is regulations informed by President Biden's Paris Climate Agreement commitment. Uh, and the carrot is now what the Senate is proposing uh, with $369 billion in energy uh, and, quote-unquote, climate spending. Um, so, yes, that is how it is being framed, uh, and I think it is an attempt to move in that direction of a transformation. Is that a good thing? No, and I think it's not a good thing because the, the, uh, the driver's seat is not the American people. It's uh, politicians who think the direction of innovation needs to be wind, solar, electric vehicles. you know It's a very narrow focus on what the energy sector should look like and what innovation should look like. And I think there's all kinds of consequences, collateral damage for that. Um, I'll just point listeners to uh, some modeling work that we've done here at the Heritage Foundation looking at uh, President Biden's Paris Climate Agreement commitment um, and the economic implications of that are quite drastic in a negative sense. So Encourage uh, listeners to to check that out. Um, but I think you know, modeling opinions aside, all we have to do is look at the case example of Europe and of California, which have been pursuing their own energy transitions by way of regulatory and legislative fiat and all kinds of subsidies, and that has not turned out well for either. Um, you know, essentially, what President Biden is doing is trying to adopt what Europe has already attempted and what is happening in the state of California, and move it nationally. And there is a reason why California has some of the highest electricity prices in the country uh, and why their grid is incredibly fragile. And there's a reason why Europe was left entirely flat-footed and without options when Russia decided to go all the way and weaponize energy, um, as we're now seeing with the Ukraine situation. And it's because they have chosen by policy to drastically reduce the use of conventional energy, coal, oil, natural gas, and to dramatically subsidize uh, wind, solar, and other renewables. Uh, the trouble is they, neither region has been able to do that. Uh, and so what they have relied on is uh, a whole lot of energy imports. Um, and so you've got an incredibly costly, fragile energy system That is, you know, basically on the on the brink of failure. And yet this is what President Biden and now the Senate is trying to push for the rest of the country.
1: So, Katie, you know, how do you respond to the proponents of the energy and climate parts of the bill um, who'd argue, hey, we need these policies to address climate change?
2: Well, I'd say, all right, we'll 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 ignore the premise of that uh, discussion and talk about, okay, if you actually want to solve global warming, does spending $369 billion get you there? Uh, and I would say very much no, um, because we're not talking about things like uh, permitting or constraints that this administration has put on mining for minerals that are essential for things like wind and solar. Um, you know, Senator Schumer has talked about, well, this spending will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40 percent. But there's been very little scrutiny over that assumption. And I don't see how you get there uh, by spending this much money in 10 years without talking about things like permitting reform. And I know that there is this albatross out there about permitting reform that Senator Manchin supposedly did uh, a handshake with Senator Schumer on. But I am not at all convinced that that's actually going to be a meaningful part of the conversation. Uh, and we're not even talking about things like reliability and whether wind and solar are one-to-one uh, trade for things like natural gas and coal. Um, so to me, uh, there there should be a lot more discussion about that 40% greenhouse gas emissions reduction number if you actually care about reducing emissions. And we're not even talking about the global picture of global warming here, which is uh a longer discussion. But,
1: but forgetting emissions, like what impact would it even have on temperature?
2: It would not. Okay. <laughs> and that's and why- that's, the,
1: Right. That's the key point, right? Yeah.
2: That's why the global uh, perspective is important. If you if you are concerned about global warming, the last thing we should be doing in the United States is pushing a very expensive uh, plan, which no one else in the world can follow uh, because emissions growth is happening in the poorest parts of the world. And so if you actually want to move the needle on global temperatures, you need to be thinking about that instead of uh, handing out corneist, uh policies to your, your political buds. Um, and even then, uh, we're talking about some very different uh, policy tools and whether the costs and benefits are actually worth it.
1: To the, the extent that you can, Katie, I mean, there's also kind of this underlying assumption that just moving to electricity... To everything being electricity is somehow going to be to even be beneficial right in when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions and not taking into account that then you're just gonna put all kinds of more pressure on the electricity grid
2: right so you know i've, I've referenced reliability a couple times and it's for that reason that i think uh, we've seen enough videos and gaffes now of politicians being all excited about electric vehicles only to realize oh the thing I'm plugging into the wall is actually tied to a coal plant or a natural gas plant. And I think that's not a bad thing, but it's important that we understand that, that 60% of our electricity comes from fossil fuels. So understand what you're actually accomplishing. And in, I would say in a lot of sense, this bill is accomplishing a PR move, uh, and that's about it.
1: So, David, are there some provisions in the in this bill that maybe aren't getting as much attention that you think... Or kind of should get some more attention or might be absurd provisions in the bill that you think we should highlight?
0: I've been following uh, the Democrats' attempt to pass this reconciliation uh, bill since the spring of last year when this whole debacle got started. One of the early frontrunners to me for the most ridiculous provision was a thing that they called tree equity, where they wanted to spend billions of dollars to plant trees in places that don't have as much as many trees and they're especially focusing on urban areas and somehow even though the total amount of spending in this reconciliation package has gone down dramatically there is still a de facto tree equity provision in this bill why the federal government needs to be involved in planting trees is beyond me for each for What this is going to mean is they will be giving out grants to state and local governments. Those state and local governments are going – so we're going to need federal bureaucrats to oversee this program. We're going to need state and local governments, bureaucrats to apply for grants and administer grants. And we're going to need to hire people to plant the trees. I guarantee you the amount of cost per tree is going to be absolutely – through the roof when it's all said and done. And ultimately, if this is such an important thing, the places that need trees should be willing to pay for their own trees. There's no reason why the places with more trees should be subsidizing trees in places with (laughs) fewer trees.
1: (laughs) You know, know it's interesting, David, is that there's, as you're talking, I I was funny and sad and amusing at the same time, but also that there's just a kind of a complete disregard for the fact that there's civil society, that there's private entities that if there's just this critical need for trees in certain areas, that there'll be a nonprofit that will plant the trees.
0: Yeah. And it it also goes to sort of this overarching left-wing obsession with terms like Equity and one of the things I'm, um, I'm I'm thinking you might know a little bit more about is environmental justice and how that concept is tying into this whole mess.
1: Well, uh, in this legislation, the, the there's going to be sixty billion dollars spent on environmental justice, and I am glad you brought that up. Uh, environmental justice, like. Some other key buzzwords like sustainability is just a nebulous concept that allows the left to define however it wants, um, to push whatever it wants, whenever it wants. Americans are getting crushed by record high gas prices and inflation not seen in over 40 years. And low-income communities are getting hurt the most because a greater share of their income as you know, goes to meeting basic needs like energy and, and, and food. But- This legislation, while it spends $60 billion on so-called environmental justice, doesn't address the regulatory obstacles and spending that is driving up prices. In fact, as as we've talked about, it's really doubling down on the flawed policies that have led to this troubling economic time for our country. I just find it interesting. If legislators genuinely care about low-income communities instead of maybe having kind of like tree equity and things like that, legislators would be addressing the policies that are creating what amounts to this massive tax on American families. It would, so, you know, for, for low-income families, these massive price increases, they force all of us to make tough choices. But for low-income families, some of those tough choices are not the difference between, like, do I go out to dinner or not go out to dinner? It's things like choosing between paying for electricity or going to the doctor. So th- this is a serious issue, these high prices, and they require serious – S- solutions, so driving down prices will help the low-income communities and those most in need. But pushing this kind of extreme agenda that ignores these costs, it not only doesn't help, but it's just making things worse. And you know what I, I like to do is kind of get into the policy recommendations real quickly. You guys might have, to, from my perspective, this bill is—I mean—it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. But in my opinion, it would do the exact opposite. And if I had solutions, I would look at the bill and basically say, okay, it'd be kind of like George Costanza type of thing. Let's do the exact opposite, what this bill would do. And as I said, this bill doubles down on what's driving up prices. It it, it takes the Biden administration, the war on energy, and then just kind of brings in the spending as well to kind of even ramp up the war on energy. So- uh, David, let me just start with you. What would you recommend to policymakers regarding the the policy merits of this legislation, and also what would you say is the best way to address inflation
0: uh, I would say in the context of this legislation um throw it in a dumpster and, and walk away <laughs> as as fast as possible. <laughs> i don't think this can be salvaged i mean it, 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 this is not a you know i'm I'm nitpicking or I, I secretly agree with ninety percent of it I can't think of a single provision in here that I think is beneficial for the average American, beneficial for the economy, beneficial for the federal government's long-term financial sustainability. Uh, I think what they should be doing is looking to uh, what the Heritage Foundation puts out, uh, which is called the uh, budget blueprint. We had an edition that came out a few months ago. We have another edition that should be coming out momentarily, We have over 200 policy recommendations that would put America on better financial footing, reduce deficits in a way that will help rather than hurt the economy, further reforming the tax code to make us more competitive on a global scale, and increase manufacturing so that we produce more goods so that the goods we have are less expensive, and as you say, It's very much the exact opposite approach to what the administration is pushing here. So, Katie, same question to you.
2: Yeah, you know, I said at the very beginning that there's uh, not much redeemable here, (laughs) you know, that it's not as bad as last year, which is not a round endorsement. So I'm with David on the the dustbin option. Um, You know, I think if we want to lower energy prices, uh, increase energy production, We need to shrink the size of D.C., by which I mean Congress and regulatory bureaucrats. Um, So, you know, I'll I'll point listeners to a background that we just published here at the Heritage Foundation called Trading an Energy Scarcity Agenda for Energy Abundance. And there's some ideas in there. Uh, We could get way into the weeds on what I think needs to happen. But basically it boils down to allow Americans to invest in energy products uh, and projects that they think will – Earn them a return without any kind of political retribution for doing so. Uh, remove barriers to energy production on state and private lands where, where most energy production happens. But unfortunately, we've got an EPA who is very ready to target that. Um, hold this administration's feet to the fire when it comes to allowing energy to be produced on federal lands and waters. This uh, Schumer-Mansion bill does a very weird, I think, weak uh option to try and get the administration to do that, that basically boils down to Congress negotiating down, and it makes no sense to me. You know, at the end of the day, allow Americans to choose. Let that conversation happen between energy producers, innovators, and their customers. And I think that's where we get uh, lower prices, uh, more energy, new energy, you know, the, the things that uh, politicians can't even dream of. Um, and that shows up in all kinds of things, you know, like better tax policy instead of cronyous tax policy, uh, defanging this administration's regulatory agenda, um, and dealing with legacy bad policies that Congress has let hang around way too long.
1: You know, I, I kind of think some of this is actually more, even more insidious. Um, first of all, I, I remember like years ago when, kind of the leaked draft of the Green New Deal, kind of this extreme agenda. And, oh, it was just that wasn't really real. And 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 people maybe think of some scare tactics about all these crazy Green New Deal policies. Well, guess what? We're seeing those Green New Deal policies. And this bill, I think, reflects that. And I also think that, in case, you know, I, I, I bring this up a lot, and I think you do as well, is that Energy is so important that you try when you try to dictate how energy is produced in this country, what you're trying to do is you're trying to dictate how people live, where they live, um, how they live, ex- just everything. So this is actually kind of the, the means to try – is a way of getting your foot and maybe two feet in the door to try to dictate the way of life um, for Americans and kind of this assumption that the D.C. politicians should be making those decisions and even are capable – of making those decisions. And, and honestly, nobody, nobody's not DC or anyone can actually figure out what's the best way to, to, to produce energy and try to create a central plan. We've recognized why do we, we don't support central planning. And that's exactly what this is in the most, probably, arguably the most important area of the economy. And they're trying to essentially plan the energy sector.
2: Well, you know, I, I think it's not a rabid or overreactionary statement to say that Climate policy has become the Trojan horse of socialism, and it's for exactly the reasons you just said, that energy is so foundational to human well-being, uh, prosperity, our um, aspirations for the future, whether we're talking about between now and getting to work, or going to school, or going to the hospital, or we're talking about now and the next decades. Um, so. Yes, I agree with what you just said, that this is, uh, there is an insidious side to this that I think Americans should be paying attention to how these dots connect.
1: David and Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, I'm Darren Bax, Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation, and I want to thank all of you who are listening to the program and hope you've enjoyed the third edition of the Center for Energy, Climate and Environment's PowerCast. Please tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the PowerCast and be on the lookout for the next edition coming out in two weeks. Thank you again.